Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Natural Running Network. We are brought to you by Mio, makers of the world's first strapless heart rate monitor sports watches, and MedHab, makers of RPM Squared, an innovative system of gait analysis that slips right into your running shoes. My name is Richard Diaz. I am your host. Are you a runner? Do you love to get out and challenge yourself? Running your first marathon or maybe caught the bug of obstacle racing? Well, sit tight because this is a show you just don't want to miss. Wow, 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 wow. That's all I can say, folks. Today I put out a request for comments and questions so that I can go solo again and do kind of a Q&A, listen and learn type of a segment. And I am overwhelmed with the number of questions and comments I got from so many cool people uh, off the social media, Facebook. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. If I don't cover the questions that you had asked of me today, I will probably get around to it sometime in the future. But i got to tell you, lots of questions, lots of great questions, and really kind of a limited amount of time to cover them all. But I'm going to do my best. So I want to preface this by saying that, first of all, everything I'm going to provide you with is going to come from opinion. This is my opinion, and I'm going to share my opinion with you. And my opinion is founded on about 30 years of experience in this field, working with athletes, doing metabolic assessments, doing gait evaluations, helping people correct problems that are causing injuries. A lot of OCR athletes, some of them professionals, some out there just trying to do the best they can. And uh, I know a little bit about this stuff, so... Again, uh, anybody that wants to refute what I have to say, they're certainly welcome to it. But again, all of the opinions I'm going to provide you with are nothing more than that. They are my opinions. Take them with a grain of salt. Take them to heart. Whatever works for you, folks. So let's get this done. As I suggested, there's lots and lots of great, great questions. And the first one came from Chris Cow. Chris is an OCR athlete and he's very serious about his ability to perform. And he came out with this question. I really, really enjoyed this question. He said, how can you tell a good training plan for you from one which may be potentially harmful? How do you safely and effectively scale training plans that may be designed for elite athletes? So I thought this was a good question, and I think what he's trying to do is he's leading towards the system of training that is offered up by Yancey Camp, in where a lot of the uh, athletes out there are basically mirroring and scaling down the workouts of some of the professional athletes that are out there in the world, many of them good friends of mine. And I guess the, the question has a lot of merit, so let me think here for a minute. Potentially harmful, let's start with that. First of all, If you're trying to take on the volume of an athlete that has got the tenure and is seasoned in the work that they do, maybe came from a pretty heavy running background, and they're capable of putting on a considerable amount of load 
opposed to someone that is a novice athlete that has not got that background. And you try to take that work on, you're definitely going to get yourself into trouble. Now, I know that Yancey has taken great pains to scale work back for people that are beginners. And I think that's important. And I think that part of the problem is that people tend to want to mimic the work of these pros because you know, monkey see, monkey do. If I do what he does, I'll be who he is. Got to be careful of that. I think you can get yourself into trouble, but I don't think it's a function of the way he's designing program. It's just more a function of someone's unbridled ambition that gets them into trouble. So how can you tell if it's a good training plan for you? That's kind of a $50,000 question in that there are so many ways to model a training program for an individual. And what I like to do, and what I do, quite frankly, is I model all of my training based on metabolic responses, and I very, very cautiously and carefully look at the metrics from the outcome of the work. So, for example, let's say that I develop a program for you, and for the first week I have you attempt to run potentially an hour every other day, and some of them at varying intensities. What I do is I look at the responses, you know, how quickly your heart rate recovers, what the stride frequency and stride mechanics look like, how much pace do you create, how much distance do you cover, and how do you feel relative to what you've done. So perception is a very big component of this. But the metrics all together start to paint a picture and start to develop an understanding of what you can or cannot get away with. So I guess my answer would be, first of all, a good program is where you are keeping track of all the details day to day. You really need to start looking at what you're doing and then you should have some comparative analysis. You should have the ability to look back at what you're doing and see whether what you're doing is providing you with progress. Because in over time, you're going to start to notice that if you do this properly, you're going to see what's working and what's not working for you. And then potentially, you could be your own best coach. So I don't know if that's the type of answer you were hoping for. But number one, let's not try to mimic the work of someone that is 100 times more capable than we are. I'm not going to try to do hanging exercises with Ryan Atkins, you know, here he can hang from a grip for as much as 14 minutes. There's just no way in hell that I'm going to be able to mimic the work that he does. And if I try, odds are I'm probably going to injure myself. And I'm using kind of a broad uh, analogy there, but I think you get the gist of what I'm saying. The next question was asked by a good friend of mine by the name of Carmencita Crum. And love this girl. Great athlete, works hard, really interested in trying to improve her OCR abilities. And her question was, how do you improve uphill speed with training? And do I have any tips for obstacle course race? Well, here's the thing. It's kind of a double-edged sword. I've seen a lot of guys go really, really, really hard for long durations on a very steep angle. And to me, this is really a function of a sufferfest. Certainly, you're going to develop the tenacity to go long on a hill, but you're not going to develop the ability to go faster on a hill. If your goal is to go faster on the hill, I highly recommend that you take on some hill repeat training in your week. 
And typically what I prescribe to most of my athletes is about two hours worth of hill repeats in the week. And the intensity is great. I have them go up hard, about a 45-second ascent. And I typically will have them walk down or jog down very, very lightly. And the hill repeats are governed by recovery heart rate, not by time. If your heart rate's not come down well enough for you to repeat the work again effectively, then you need to wait. Because if you wait, every time you go back up that hill, it's like doing a max lift. You can't produce maximum effort if you're too fatigued. It's a whole different process that you're developing when you go up and do the Sufferfest kind of a workout. If you want to get up hills faster, you've got to develop that hip strength. And the other thing that you need to concern yourself with is the degree of angle. Don't get on such a severe steep that encumbers your capacity to get access to your hips effectively and to get yourself in a good running posture. So I like to see my athletes at about a 20% grade, not too much greater than that. I know a lot of guys have been rushing off to find these 40 and 60% grade treadmills. Certainly that's going to cause you to get tough. I don't like to take a beating. I like to hand them out. And if you're like me, I suggest high-intensity repeats, 20% grade, 45-second repeats. That's going to get you where you need to go. The next question was posed by Fabian Lindner. Fabian's a past client of mine, done some work with him. Great guy, very, very tough, good athlete. His question was, what's your opinion on muscle mass on OCR athletes? In the sense that a big upper body comes at a cost in terms of weight and caloric expense, is there a threshold when carrying around muscle becomes a significant burden in your running? Really, really good question. Wait a minute, there's another part to it. Let's kind of scroll down here. Have you looked at the Spartan SGX courses? And if so, what's your take on them? Would you agree that they neglect the running is the ultimate skill to have and improve in OCR? I always run hills during my training, but most, almost, but almost all routes have steep declines. Should I keep up my target heart rate and bomb down those hills at every training run or take it easy on the way down in order to reduce the impact over time? Wow, those are some good questions. Let's take them one at a time. First of all, there is absolutely a concern where strength-to-weight ratio is, is, a, is a topic. Certainly, strength-to-weight ratio is a concern. If you're carrying around more mass than is needed relative to the task at hand, it's just going to become too expensive and it's not going to be of any value to you. A big, heavy-muscled runner is a runner that is incapable of going long and fast. You may find that you're capable of doing sprint races very, very effectively if you're a big guy. The deficit is when you have to carry that mass around for too, too great a length of time. I like to believe that there is definitely a place where there's a sweet spot relative to the amount of weight you carry relative to your strength. And at the same token, you could be really, really strong relative to your mass, but it just becomes too expensive because it's too much to carry around with you. So leaner is better. Too lean is not good. You can ask some of the great athletes like Max King that struggles when it comes to the weight-bearing exercises in an OCR event, and he crushes the run. 
it's a it's a sticky wicket. You got to be careful. But uh, knowing you and knowing what you look like, I think you're in a pretty good place. I think your strength to weight ratio is pretty good. Your focus really needs to be on running mechanics, and I think that's going to help you a ton. In respect to Spartan SGX courses, I know nothing of them. I don't chase them. I don't pay much attention to them. I'm sure that there's a ton of validity behind a lot of the things that they do, and I really don't have a comment on the subject. I really just don't know. Now, in respect to running hills, and as you suggested, a lot of steep declines, it's interesting you bring this up because this is something that I've decided to start posting in my workouts for my athletes is downhill running. You know, we talked about doing some high-intensity uphill repeats. Well, I think that there's something to be said for focusing on being very skillful on downhill runs. There is absolutely an art to being an effective downhill runner. Like anything, if you're going to be proficient at it, you need to practice it. So my recommendation for downhill running is that you do it with purpose. You find a stretch of downhill that you're going to attack. You're going to focus on the variability in your cadence, your posture, your contact points, how you incorporate your arm swing, and you're going to focus on developing your capacity to get down those hills effectively because breaking load on the way down a hill is murder on the joints. Going uphill is never a problem. Matter of fact, most of the athletes that I work with that don't run well, I prescribe a ton of uphill running because it's really tough to screw up an uphill run. Lisa Nordoff had posed a question and basically mirrors the question that Fabian had asked about muscle mass. And she related very effectively the notion that you would try to adapt your training routines relative to the races you're planning. She made the, the comparison of Spartan versus Battle Frog events, where in Battle Frog the obstacles are mandatory, which would account for the need to have better upper body strength. And I agree that there's something to be considered there. When we talk about thresholds, I think there's a threshold in respect to the upper body strength you can obtain. And then after a while, it becomes a function of maintenance, more so than the ability to improve. You're going to get to a place where you can potentially get through most of the obstacles without failure. And when you get to that place, it becomes a function of maintenance. And that does not mean a six-day-a-week routine that surrounds hanging from things and grip strength. You're going to get that, and then it's a function of maintaining it. Then it becomes a, a function of how quickly you can move from one obstacle to the next because the race is not one on the obstacles. It's a function of how quickly you can get to the obstacles and away from them. Now I've got a slew of questions that revolve around cadence and speed. I love those questions because they're right up in my wheelhouse. That's my focus. I train people to be faster. I train people to run better. And so i got a couple questions Benjamin Bogard, an old client of mine, and a gentleman by the name of Jeremy Catapole. And Benjamin says, I've spent a lot of time getting my cadence to 180. I am finally hitting that consistently on anything slower than a 10K pace. But now my cadence is going over 180, 185 on faster pace runs. What does this mean? Is it bad? If so, what should I work on? 
It's a really, really good question in that most people are really confused about how to incorporate cadence and if whether they should be concerned about it. So here's the thing. What makes us faster is our stride length relative to our frequency. Now think about this. If your frequency of stride is fixed, regardless of whether it's 180, 190, whatever it might be, then the only way to go faster at that given cadence is if you push yourself through space further ahead of yourself, which is stride length. Now, if you find that you can push off and gather more ground in flight than you had before at the same frequency, you are now moving faster. If you find that you're having to turn your legs over quicker, you will move faster, but the cost of work is going to go up exponentially. And that's the problem. If you start to wind up your cadence to a point where it gets really, really quick, the expense becomes insurmountable. You're going to start developing a ton of lactic acid in the muscles, and it's going to be debilitating, unless you have a short distance left to travel. So if you smell the barn, so to speak, if you're very, very near the finish line and you've got this one surge left that you've got to put out, absolutely, if you've exhausted your ability to go faster at the same frequency, then all that's left is to increase your frequency in order to get to the finish line quicker. So to answer your question, I guess it's not a bad thing if you need to improve your cadence in order to get greater speed but it's an expensive proposition. What I try to teach my athletes to do is open up their hip angle. Find speed by moving your hips apart wider. Reach out. When you make contact with the ground, you make contact very near your center of mass and lose the ground behind you in order to gather a greater stride length. And then Jeremy asked the question in respect to should he be utilizing track workouts for speed opposed to just running hills and trails? And if so, how often for it to be effective in increasing his speed? Speed is not a function of the type of terrain or surface that you end up running on. So traditionally, most people think track workouts equate to speed. And I beg to differ. Most people that I see do track workouts, they're traditional track workouts, are not prepared to take on those types of repeats where the intensity is very great for a given distance, 400, 800, 1200 meters, and then governed amount of recoveries relative to time rather than to expense, looking at heart rate. The first thing that you're going to need to do if you want to go faster is you need to improve the way you run. It is not a function of the distance you travel. It's a function of the mechanics in which you travel. If you don't have that sorted out, you're going to be beating your head against the wall, and it's going to be a point where you're going to plateau with your speed, and it's going to be hell to try to go faster. Work on your running mechanics first. Running mechanics are what develop speed. Run better, run faster. Regardless of what the terrain might be, whether you're on a hill whether you're on natural terrain as opposed to a tartan track, always focus on your running mechanics when the theme for the day is to develop speed. Incidentally, I've written a book about this type of thing, 
and I've coined the term motor skill development is a critical component of your running skill sets. If you read the book, you'll see where I talk about this at great length, and I have a lot of athletes that I've taught to do this, and they start finding speed when they start understanding what motor skill development was all about. Just a lot of great questions. I've got another one from Jamie Lopez. Jamie has flat feet. And he wants to know, does that mean that you have to go with a stability shoe? My recent experience is that I can nail down 180 cadence. The stability cushiony shoe feel bulky and heavy. And my last few races, I use flatter shoes than normal and have been faster and nailing 180. They have instilled a fear in me that I will injure myself using shoes with less support with such flat feet. Is this true? Absolutely not true. If you run with good running mechanics, it does not make much difference whether you're flat-footed or otherwise. And I can tell you that in all the science that has been conducted, in research that's been conducted in respect to running shoe design, there has never been a moment where they have proven that designing a shoe to cause stability, designing a shoe that's going to provide you with more cushion, or motion control has been shown to be of any value or merit. Shoes do not correct bad running form. Running mechanics correct bad running form. So putting on a clunky shoe, and I know you're a big guy and you've got a re reasonably large foot, putting on that big brick on your foot is absolutely going to cement you to the ground. You put on a flatter shoe, you run on your midfoot, you're going to start noticing that you're going to have more movement accuracy. Your feet are going to do what they need to do, and you're going to run a lot more efficiently because you're starting to feel the ground. Teach yourself to gather the information from the ground Use it to your own end. You'll find more stability when your structure is functioning properly. Don't depend on a shoe to do it. Don't listen to some teenager in a running shoe store that espouses to be some fashion of expert on shoe design and what your flaws are. Nine out of ten times, that information is bull. Good for you, finding a flatter shoe, working for you. Trust your judgment in this. Don't trust that kid. Got a question from a Edward Yavno. Again, I apologize if I'm butchering your name. What are your recommendations for structuring beginner slash intermediate run training alongside strength training for both OCR and just someone who likes strength training? Well, being a runner does not mean you can't like strength training or vice versa. And sidling up a running program in relation to a Yancey workout is not a complex thing. I do it all the time. Many of my clients are also working with Yancey and having great success with his program and have found even better success now that they're doing some of the th things I have them do with their running program. In respect to explaining the details of a beginner and intermediate and how it all works out with a uh, a Yancey program. That's a lot to talk about right now, and I don't have the time, but I would suggest to you that if you're trying to understand the fundamentals of a good, solid running program, 
regardless of whether it be for OCR or just going out to try to crush a marathon, take a look at my book, My Best Race. There's a lot of good information there, if I do say so myself. You need to learn some fundamentals. You need to learn about aerobic conditioning, anaerobic conditioning, and, of course, as I've been beating the drum, you need to learn how to run properly and to develop your skill sets. I told you, I've got a lot of questions. A lot of people are very curious about various things re regarding OCR and running mechanics. And uh, here's another one from Marco Areño. He's a client of mine, turns out. He lives in Texas. And so Marco's asking, what would I recommend as a way to expend a rest day? Meaning to have a full rest or some recovery work slash activity. In such case, what activity slash workout would you recommend? Now, there's two fashions of recovery. One, where you do nothing. You just chill, relax, give yourself a break. And then there's active recovery. Active recovery is doing something that is not directly tied to the activity that causes you to need the recovery. For example, in his case, going for a bike ride, going for a nice long walk, maybe a hike. If you just can't seem to sit still and you feel like you got to do something, do some active recovery. Find something that's not going to be very laborious. It's not going to tax your system. Keep your heart rate down. And maybe even do like a yoga class or something like that. Work on your stretch and your mobility. But at the end of the day, I know in his case, he probably could just use the day off. And uh, that's always good practice. The principal rule to remember in training is you do not improve while you work. You improve while you rest. If you don't rest, you will not improve. Cody Higgs is also a client of mine. He's out of the uh, Nashville, Tennessee area. And Cody's asking what I think about these huge stack height shoes like the Hoka's. And quite frankly, anymore, we've got Ultras looking like that, and a lot of the other shoe companies are falling in, in line to create these big stack heights. Let me tell you something about the shoe industry. They're not creating these big stack heights because they found out it's going to be better for you they just found out that if you think you're going to land on a mattress, you'll be cozy, they'll sell more shoes. And there could be nothing further from the truth. And I know that there's some athletes out there that swear by them, blah, blah, blah. But at the end of the day, if you understand physiology, if you understand the way the body works and responds to ground contact, you will know that it's just not happening. You could go ahead and tell yourself whatever kind of fable you want to in respect to what these big cushy shoes are going to do for you, and maybe you'll get yourself to believe it. And what I've learned is that this type of shoe is just an excuse to be irresponsible with the way you move. There's going to be a lot of haters out there not going to love what I just said, but I told you at the beginning of the show, this is about an opinion. I just shared mine. Incidentally, for those of you that don't know me, I am 63 years old, I am 250 pounds, and I run in a zero-drop neutral shoe with minimal cushioning, and I can run as long as my energy allows me and my old ass is able to go without jacking up my knees, without jacking up my hips, without having any Achilles or calf problems. How do you think that's happening? Ah, here's a question I don't love from a guy I do, Alan Lewis. He's asking, 
How do you recognize pain from a sprain or a muscle tear? And how long does it need to heal, and how do you adjust your training for that? Don't love the question because it suggests he's hurt himself. So, Alan, here's the deal. Typically, a sprain or a strain is going to create swelling and a lot of discomfort. A muscle tear is a whole other animal. What you'll notice is that generally there'll be discoloration because you're bleeding inside. You've tore muscle. There's going to be consequence in that there's going to be bruising from torn muscle. And quite frankly, the muscle tear has potential to heal quicker than generally a sprain or a strain. That doesn't mean that you would want to run through it or train through it. You want to respect these injuries regardless of whether it be a strain, a sprain, or a muscle tear. I can tell you that in any of those cases, if you're going to try to train through it, obviously you're going to reduce the amount of volume and intensity greatly. And I would highly recommend you look into some taping strategies. Rock Tape is someone that is sponsoring my show, is sponsoring me. I've used their tape, worked with athletes. It's been my go-to product for a lot of these concerns, and it's really amazing the types of relief you can gather from it. I would highly recommend you look at some taping strategies relative to whatever it is that you may have going on, but respect the injury. If it's really something you need to worry about, take the time off. You're young, you're strong, you'll heal, you'll get back in the game soon. But uh, don't try to rush the process. If you've torn something, sprain something, strain something. What will happen if you try to rush back into training is you're probably going to do some compensating and you're going to create a whole new series of injuries. Just allow yourself the recovery, people. If you hurt yourself, respect the pain, respect the injury, give yourself some time off. All right, we're finally getting around to some heart rate questions, which I really like. A gentleman by the name of John Lynch, I've worked with him on a couple different occasions. And he's out here in California, and his question is, for a new OCR athlete and runner, what is your opinion on running duration versus heart rate? Is it more important for a new athlete work up to running at least 30 minutes without stopping before heart rate training, or does that not matter? Well, that's a really interesting question, because most novice runners, when they do go out and try to run, the intensity is typically greater than should be until they've developed some aerobic potential. And so the limitation in the duration of run is generally an intuitive response where you've kind of decided that you've had enough and you're done running. But the reason is probably because you're running too hot to begin with. I would recommend, especially you, given I know that we've done a VO2 test on you, whatever your threshold might have been, respect it for a while. If you run up and your heart rate starts to exceed that threshold, go ahead and walk until you recover well enough to begin running again. And you'll find that very shortly you'll be able to sustain those runs without having your heart rate go too high and start causing havoc. The success in most running-related adventures does revolve around how aerobic you can be relative to the intensity you take on. You want to win races? Don't burn up before the guy you're racing against. Here's a question from a lady that I know out in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, Emily Richard. She asks, since I started heart rate training, my pace is all over the place. My first mile may be a 745, 
Then several miles later, I'm running nine-minute miles just to stay in the correct heart rate zone. Is it better to stay consistent with my pace or concentrate on staying in the correct heart rate zone? And why am I all over the place? All right, so all over the place suggests to me that your heart rate's going up relative to your pace. And that is pointing towards a lot of things. As your body starts to heat up, the cost starts to go with it. If you start to dehydrate, the cost is going to go up. Now, that can be looked at as a reminder that you're not hydrating properly during your run. Emily, I'm going to bet dollars to donuts when you go out and run that you do not bring hydration with you. And when you start talking to me about several miles, if you don't have some fashion of electrolyte replacement and hydration with you, planning to take care of those circumstances, your heart rate's going to go through the roof and your pace is going to drop off. Learn from that information and you'll start to notice that when you start putting that fire out while you're running, you'll be able to sustain your pace more effectively relative to the same cost of work. Heart rate being all over the map, I'm going to point towards hydration and overheating and you'll find that with time that you'll be able to sustain greater and greater distances at the same pace, at the same heart rate, but absolutely take care of the hydration. It's going to make a big difference for you. Now, this is a pretty interesting question, too. This is from Heather Wiatrowski. I think I got that right. She asks, if getting in a morning run means I only get four hours of sleep, should I sleep for five and a half hours that night or sleep for four hours and then run? So what I'm gathering from this comment is that you're not getting enough sleep. If you're only getting four hours of sleep a night, you need to address that problem. And I don't know what's causing it, whether you have kids, whether you have a, uh, two jobs, whatever it might be, but I'm telling you right now, you cannot effectively live on four hours or five hours of sleep and perform well as an athlete. If you're cutting your sleep to four hours in order to accommodate a workout, I don't know, man. I go to bed 8 o'clock every night. I'm up at 5. I still get the sleep I need. My attitude is there's nothing of great value that's going to happen in my life after 8 o'clock. I'm a married man. Everything I need is right here in my house. I want to go to sleep. I want to get my rest. And I want to be able to get up in the morning and train if and when I need to. So my advice to you, my dear, is not try to carve your sleep up any more than you already have. My advice is to try to find a way to get at least eight hours of sleep. You're going to be a lot happier. Got another great question on heart rate. It's coming from Matthew Mortgott. He is in Florida. Another athlete that I've worked with. As a matter of fact, he drove 12 hours to come see me in Baton Rouge for the running clinic we did there. Good guy, great athlete. Here's his question. Actually, he's got a few, but I'm going to narrow it down to a couple. The first question was, what are my thoughts on math method and math training? So for those of you that don't know what that is, it's short acronym for Maffetone. Phil Maffetone, Dr. Phil Maffetone is essentially a heart rate guru. He's been in the business a long time. I've met and actually did a workshop with Dr. Maffetone, I think it was ooh, 15 years ago in Las Vegas. And um, I thought he was a little crazy. I told him I was sorry for all the things I said about him over the past 15 years because it turns out a lot of the things he said made a lot of sense to me, finally. And so 
my attitude is with Maffetone is you've got to take it with a grain of salt. He's right about a lot of things where aerobic conditioning is a principal component of good health. It's a principal co- component of a good training program. But I promise you, if you want to perform well, you cannot focus exclusively on aerobic conditioning. You need to visit the dark side. And I know that there's a lot of people doing OCR that are listening to me regularly. And I promise you that if you try to win an OCR event, a Spartan um, Super, a Sprint, even a Beast, your likelihood of success by doing nothing but aerobic conditioning is going to put you in a bad place. You're going to find out you'll survive most anything but never perform well at any of them. I don't mean that to be a disparaging remark towards Maffetone. I love the guy. I think he's offered up a tremendous amount of benefit to the athletic community, but there's more to it than that. There's more ways to skin a cat, and I believe that if you're going to train effectively, you need to get anaerobic, and you need to understand how to tame that cat. Another question he had was about metabolic efficiency tests, and I think this falls very nicely into the comments. A metabolic efficiency test could be a number of things, and uh, I do perform these tests, one of them being a resting metabolic assessment, is to find out how much energy your body requires within a 24-hour period if you don't do a thing. It's a really good bit of information in that it helps you to set up a really solid nutrition program. You may find that you're not getting enough food. You may find that you're getting too much. If you want to balance your energy in order to have optimal results, meaning that you're going to get leaner, drop the body fat, and improve your energy stores, this is a good place to start. The other test would be a VO2 max test, and that conjures up the thought of doing some really high-intensity effort. I do these tests all the time. My principal concern when I do this test is to identify the metabolic shift point when your body has gone away from burning fat to exclusively burning sugar. When you know what this is, where this occurred, and believe me when I tell you, it's not something you can predict effectively. You need to be tested to know this information. You can establish a far, far more efficient training program when you understand these metabolic consequences of work. So if the question is, do I think athletes should do them? I think every athlete should do it. When you decide whomever you are, whenever you are, to get involved in a fitness program, your first stop should be to get a VO2 test. Find out how your body's responding to work. It is a gold standard for determining your fitness, and it's also a great blueprint for developing training moving forward. A lot of people want to say that they reserve this type of testing for professional athletes. I beg to differ. I've done thousands of these tests over the last 20 years on all fashions of athletes, and trust me when I tell you, I've never met anybody that if they used the information, didn't benefit from it. I think I'm going to wrap this up with this last question. I had so many questions, overwhelmed with questions. And I apologize if I didn't get to everybody, but I only have so much time to do this. I appreciate all the questions, and I hope that we do this again, because apparently people are interested in this type of thing, and they'd like to have some commentary on some of these questions. And so here I am. I'm your Huckleberry. I'll be glad to help you out as best I can. All you got to do is fire the questions out and we'll do this again. So I got Jack Bauer. Jack Bauer is a, an elite athlete. He's out there in Texas, OCR athlete. And he asked a pretty interesting question. And I, once again, this is someone I've worked with. 
Jack says, when building a base, why is it important to vary intensities? So many people think that building a base means running at an aerobic pace or slower and don't do any faster work that works on their turnover because they're afraid they'll peak too early. At your clinic, you mentioned that you should spend most of your time in the aerobic zone while building a base but still need to dip into the faster regions throughout the process. You should clarify this for the listeners. All right, so here's the thing. If you spend 10 weeks staying aerobic because you believe it's important, and then after you've developed all these benefits that come with that development of time in aerobic conditioning, only to dispatch that zone and start spending time anaerobically, you're going to give away all the benefits you earn by staying aerobic. This is referred to as linear periodization. It's age-old. The scientific community these days understands and realizes that to do this would be a mistake. You're going to be far better off to maintain your fitness while you're developing your aerobic base because fitness occurs at higher intensities. Now, I'm not suggesting that you would even do an equal share or a greater amount of anaerobic work in order to improve your fitness. You don't want to give up your aerobic potential to earn fitness, and you don't want to earn your fitness by giving up your aerobic potential. You need to determine how much time should be dedicated relative to task. The longer the event that you plan to do, the more important the aerobic component is. But regardless of how far the event is, you still want to drive some high-intensity efforts to build your fitness, to build your myocardium, to build your stroke volume. All these types of things occur at the pump, and much like every other muscle on your body, your muscles rely on overload to become stronger. In the lack of overload, you lack the development and muscular strength. Again, your heart is a pump. In order for it to effectively deliver oxygen and blood to the working body, it depends on forceful contractions. And the more forceful contractions, the more blood and oxygen you deliver per beat. So you don't want to give way to exclusive aerobic conditioning at any time. Okay, so I'm going to wrap this up. I want to... Thank everyone that wrote in and offered up these questions. It was a lot of fun. I hope that those that are listening got some pearls of wisdom out of this. And a final note, we are planning to do another clinic in Fort Collins, Colorado. Going to go down there and meet up with my posse or one of my posse, Miguel Medina, uh, I've got some athletes in Colorado that I work with, and we're hoping to put on a show there. Running clinic, metabolic testing, the whole nine yards. If you're curious about this, reach out to me on Facebook. I'll put you on a short list. We don't take very many people when we do this. We're probably looking to top out at about 25 people max. If you're curious, if you're interested, you want to improve your running skills, you want to learn about metabolic efficiency and how to use your heart rate while you're training, you don't want to miss this. This is a really, really powerful clinic. It's why we're all over the country doing it. People are calling for it, people are enjoying it, and people are improving because they participated. Thanks so much, and you guys have an amazing, amazing weekend. Well, friends, it's time to bring another show to a close. 
Be sure and tune in to us next week. We've got a lot of great content in store for you. I want you to tell your friends to check us out. You can always find us on Facebook. Simply go search the Natural Running Network. Drop us a message. I'd love to learn more about you and the things you do. And until then, you have an amazing day.